today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. At the height of Friday's Twisters, um, about 400,000 customers had lost power with Hydro One. At last check, uh, there's about 20,000 still in the dark. Hundreds of traffic lights are still not functioning in the, in the national capital region. They're still out of commission. And uh, because of the devastation, because of the, uh, well, the impact emotionally, physically in some cases, people have been told to stay home, uh, you know, take the day off work, work from home if you have to. Uh, some school boards have closed and uh, students are getting the day off. Uh, I'm sure they'd rather be in school than being displaced from their homes. That's for sure. But amongst all this, uh, there are insurance questions that people are asking and in the aftermath of Friday's devastation, uh, the Insurance Bureau of Canada has some advice for affected homeowners, and that is document everything. Uh, Pete Karagiorgis is the Director of Consumer and Industry Relations with the Insurance Bureau of Canada, and he joins us now. Peter, good afternoon. Hello. So talk about the situation in Ottawa and the response that uh, you guys are now providing. Well, we're here on behalf of our member companies. So the companies that actually sell home, car, and business insurance, the ones that people are calling because they've had damage to their property, to their homes, apartments, or their cars, uh, we're coordinating uh, information on behalf of those residents who have been affected um, and trying to assist them in terms of answering general questions, making sure that they've reached out to their insurance companies, that they've started the claims process, and, and also just giving them a, a sense of what steps they should be taking to make sure the process goes as smooth as possible. So bring us through those steps. What are some of the first things that people should be doing? If, if disaster strikes, if we had something major here in Hamilton, w- what should people be doing? Well, first things first, even before disaster strikes, uh, you want to document what you have in your property. So taking an inventory of your belongings. Because uh, if you can imagine, there are some homes here up in Dunrobin where I am today and was yesterday um, that are completely destroyed. And so people have lost virtually everything uh, from Christmas decorations to televisions to electronics to mementos and keepsakes. It's difficult for a homeowner to remember what exactly they had in their home. So before disaster even strikes, you want to document what you have. And, and that can be as quite simply uh, taking videos with your phone or taking pictures with your phone uh, in closets, in drawers of your rooms, of your belongings. Uh, so if those things were to disappear uh, or go missing or damaged completely, um, could you prove what you had to provide a list of those items to the insurance uh, adjuster. Um, so also take photos if there is a, uh, an event. Uh, we're encouraging people now to take photos of the damage before they start throwing things away or before they start repairing, uh, just so that, again, it could be a record of uh, the extent of the damage. And um, you know, that will help in the claims process, as will keeping any receipts uh, for any out-of-pocket expenses, uh, some folks may be out of pocket for uh, accommodations or uh, purchasing supplies, building supplies to, uh, to cover up broken windows or to tarp roofs. Uh, or may have paid someone to do that work. Keep all those receipts to submit it as part of your claim. Those are great tips, but are, are people really thinking about that after a disaster? I mean, in some cases, people have lost most things, if not everything, they might not be, and, and and no blame on them, they might not not be right of mind because it is such an emotional time. Well, exactly. You know, a, a lot of the folks that we have spoken to, um, 
you know, depending on the level of damage, those people, they're, they're holding up pretty well, but you're right. Top of mind for them is not the process. And so that's why uh, the other basic point that we're saying to everyone and making sure is that they call their insurance company to report the claim. Um, additional adjusters uh, are being brought in by the insurance companies uh, to assist, uh, to help people work through the claims process and to settle those claims. Uh, so be safe, first and foremost, call your uh, insurance company to report the claim. Uh, that way the companies can respond with the appropriate uh, staff. Um, and again, in, in some cases, it's, you know, they're going to be working with adjusters, contractors, engineers. Uh, they're going to be seeing a whole bunch of people. And it's going to be a confusing process and challenging for anyone at the best of times. So uh, uh, again, if there's questions, uh, concerns, uh, at the IBC, we're here to help answer those questions, provide some guidance, and that's what we've been doing so far uh, for some of the people who've uh, had the questions and, and seen us here at the uh, uh, at the school. What are the most common questions? Just ba- basically, where do I go? Where do I go? What do I do? And, and am I covered for this? Um, you know, again, the, the good thing is that uh, even the most standard, the basic policy covers an event like a wind storm or a tornado, which is the same thing. And, and so wind, fire, those are two perils, basic perils that are covered under most policies. Uh, unlike water damage, when we've seen some of, the, uh, um, some of the impacts of water and flooding and rainstorms, water is an optional coverage that not everyone has on their policies, uh, but wind is there. And so uh, we're just providing people with that guidance and advice in terms of reassuring them that, yes, uh, you know, things will get better, unfortunately. In some cases, it may take a little bit of time. And that damage by windstorm, is that just a basic coverage, and is it just a basic amount? Well, no, no. It's, uh, it really depends on an individual's home insurance policy. So uh, a home policy, even a tenant's policy, will, cover, will provide certain levels of coverages. And the level of coverage will vary. It will vary by the individual homeowner and how much coverage they have bought, uh, how big their home is, how much property they have, how much contents and belongings they have. But uh, a home insurance policy covers a person for their building, for the dwelling. Uh, it covers a person for their contents, anything they take with them when they move in and out to a house. Uh, it covers uh, any uh, outbuildings or fences, uh, you know, sheds that aren't attached to the, the home uh, to rebuild all those things, as well as, uh, and this is a critical thing right now for people in the early uh, stages, it covers additional living expenses. So if someone's forced to live uh, somewhere else in a hotel or find all the accommodations because their home's unlivable, um, that there's coverage for that too. So it's important to understand what your limits are for each of those uh, coverages. And, and that's the type of conversation that people should be having on an annual basis. People's situations change, and you want to review uh, your coverages on an annual basis with your insurance representative. We're chatting with uh, Peter Karagiorgios, uh, Director of Consumer and Industry Relations with the Insurance Bureau of Canada here on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Rick, in for Scott today. Uh, we were chatting with uh, David Fraser, a volunteer with the Canadian Red Cross, a few minutes ago, and he said that uh, 50 homes in the Dunrobin area are basically unlivable. Uh, that seems like a long road to recovery for those families and individuals. What happens to those people? Well, again, for those individuals who uh, whose homes are, uh, are are needing to be rebuilt because uh, 
you know, that's completely destroyed. Um, the steps uh, simply are working with their uh, adjuster, working with contractors. First and foremost, many of these, these homeowners are, are uh, out there on their properties trying to uh, sift through the debris, see what they can recover. Um, there's many people who are looking for keepsakes, mementos, uh, items that they, uh, uh, that they can help rebuild um, their lives with. Um, and then, you know, the properties are going to have to be cleaned up before the reconstruction effort begins. And so, um, again, there's contractors and volunteers here uh, to help homeowners with that uh, work. And so uh, it's a, just a matter of starting. And again, unfortunately, it's starting from scratch. Those people who have lost everything, um, you know, it, it's going to be a long road because those homes are going to be custom built now. So each of those properties is going to have to be rendered safe. Debris is going to be removed. Drawings are going to have to be done. So architects, engineers, um, city building officials are going to be involved, contractors. Uh, so it, in, in many cases, for those people who have to rebuild from the ground up, will take some time. You mentioned the process of uh, homeowners who have uh, lost uh, everything in many cases. What about the other side, those insurance adjusters, those claim experts who are now on the scene? Are they going through a checklist uh, property by property and determining what needs to be done or, or what's damaged and what needs to be replaced or, or the worthiness of, uh, of, of one item compared to the next? Yes, and that's part of the process is the assessment. Uh, there are some homes here that haven't suffered as much damage as others. And so uh, adjusters, appraisers, uh, contractors, they're all working together uh, to, uh, to value the claim in terms of what needs to be done to determine uh, you know, what work uh, is required to either make the home livable or just to restore the home to the shape it was in before the, uh, the tornado. So in some cases, it may mean uh, some roof shingles, some, some eaves troughs, some siding, um, maybe a, a fence needs to be rebuilt. In other cases, again, as we said, it, it may be a whole new home from the ground up. And But uh, before the work can begin, we need to assess what's required. And uh, that is sometimes uh, challenging, but fortunately, the communities come together. Um, there are all sorts of volunteers that are even helping homeowners, as I said, um, sift through the green, clean up properties. If you can imagine, there's a lot of trees and, and items and even building materials um, in people's yards and people's properties that have come from other places that, um, you know, needs to be uh, cleared up before uh, before things can start returning to normalcy. When there's one home affected by, uh, we'll just call it a weather event, uh, now multiply that by, uh, you know, a few dozen in this case, and the Gatineau region a few hundred, uh, how long is this process going to take? It, uh, it'll, it'll take months in some cases at least. Um, you know, as an industry, we've seen events, uh, you know, that have devastated communities. Fort McMurray wildfires two, two summers ago in 2016. And in some cases, homes are, are still being built today. So uh, it really, uh, it, it's a timely process. Uh, sometimes it can be more challenging than others. Um, so it sometimes will require patience. Um, the demand, again, when we look at those types of events and catastrophes that strike communities, uh, the demand is great in some cases for some skilled trades. And so, you know, trying to line up and have enough appropriate tradespeople uh, is, is a challenge at time, and that could add to delays. And so it really is, uh, uh, is a case-by-case situation. We saw in Toronto, for example, uh, there was a, a windstorm that damaged a lot of properties in May, 
and uh, roofing companies were in high demand. And so there weren't enough roofers um, to um, to repair people's roofs back then. And so uh, months later, we still have some homes in the GTA uh, that are waiting to be repaired because of the shortage of roofers. So, again, it really is uh, a challenging process. It can be a timely process, uh, but working with the adjusters, working with the contractors, uh, should help uh, get things moving quickly. A couple more questions for Peter Karagiorgos, the Director of Consumer and Industry Relations with the Insurance Bureau of Canada here on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Rick in for Scott today. We haven't really chatted about business owners, but some of them were affected as well. Uh, would you offer them the same advice? Do they go through the same process? Yes, definitely. I actually spoke to one yesterday, um, and uh, again, you know, they were challenged by the fact that they had spoken to their uh, adjuster, and their adjuster wanted lists of uh, product and stock that was damaged, and so shelving was overturned, and you know, roofs were uh, uh, roof shingles were, were falling in in the uh, in the business, so it was unsafe. Uh, so it was difficult to provide an itemized list. But again, it goes back to the point that you need to still try and document your loss. Um, so, you know, we encourage them to go back in, uh, if they could safely, to take photos, take videos, um, indicate what was there on the shelves in the store um, so that that listing can be compiled to assess um, how much product was lost in addition to the actual physical structural repairs that needed to be done. So it's more challenging for businesses in that respect, especially if they have products um, that need to be replaced or, uh, or thrown out. So um, again, it's, uh, it's about knowing what to do, taking the time to document, list things so that your claim can move along. Do we have a damage estimate yet? Uh, it's still far too early uh, to get an estimate in terms of damages. I, I can say, however, that in Ontario, unfortunately, this year, uh, because of severe weather, we've seen a billion dollars in damages uh, to properties. Again, storms, wind damage, ice storms and the like. Now when you add this tornado in, uh, obviously that number will exceed a billion dollars, uh, and we're only in uh, September now. We still have a few more months of the year to go. Um, that is concerning because on an annual basis uh, leading up to this year, as an industry, insurers have seen about a billion dollars in severe weather damage across the whole country. And so far, we've already pierced that limit in Ontario alone. Wow. Peter, appreciate the time. Uh, best of luck in the Ottawa area. Thank you. My pleasure. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Why the heck are Canadians so unhealthy? Well, Global News has launched an online series of stories called Canada the Sick that examines some of the causes of our increasingly unhealthy way of life. All week long at 900CHML.com and, of course, globalnews.ca, we'll look at income inequality, uh, how the incomes can dictate poor life choices. We'll examine whether diets really help people lose and keep off weight. Do we need to redesign our neighborhoods to promote, uh, to promote more active lifestyles? And is the work environment, especially an office job, harmful to our health? Say it ain't so. We'll also look at personal responsibility when it comes to lifestyle choices and your overall health. Let's bring in our next guest. Her name is Leslie Young, Senior National Online Journalist of Health with Global News, and joins us now. Leslie, how are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Not too bad. So the easiest question anyone is ever going to ask you is, why are Canadians unhealthy? <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, it's not an easy answer. Yeah. So what are we what are we doing and what are we not doing? Well, uh, you know, maybe I'll try some statistics here. So just to start, you know, in 1978, about 14% of Canadian adults were obese. And now, or in 2014, that's more like 28%. So that's just kind of one example of uh, of what's happened over the years with uh, with our health. So that that number basically has doubled in about 30 years. That that's alarming, isn't it? Yeah, and you know, it's not just me who thinks so, or you. It's uh, even the Canada's chief public health officer, uh, Dr. Teresa Tam, basically told me she's she's incredibly concerned about this. So, can we point to one thing, or is there a variety of factors that we are just uh, that are contributing to a, an unhealthy lifestyle? It is a huge number of factors, honestly. Um, it seems to be things like our, our work lives, as you mentioned, you know, office jobs. We used to get, uh, someone told me, we used to get paid to exercise. Now we have to pay to exercise. So that's, that's one example. I mean, we, do, we don't do as much physical work as we used to. Our, we get in the car and, and drive to the store, drive to work, drive home. Um, we uh, income inequality. I mean, if you have to try and decide, should I take a sick day or do I need the hours to get paid so I can make rent this week? I mean, these are all big decisions that we make that that have huge impacts on our health. Those are serious conversations, but there are some situations where, and I'm only pointing the finger at myself and, and maybe family and friends who are in this boat as well, is that maybe we just don't take our health as seriously as we should. I'll do this later. I'll work out next month. I'll go for a run next week. I don't have time right now. I'm too busy with work or other things, and we're always uh, seem to be setting it aside. We're, we are the procrastinators. <laughs> uh, you're probably not the only one. No, um, it's <laughs> it's definitely a thing we all do. You know, you go you go home after a long day at work, and you go, I'm tired. You know what? I need uh, I need to spend a little time sitting here, watch some TV, recharge a bit. And I mean, you know, we all need that, but our decisions do have consequences as well, of course. And those consequences certainly have, in many cases, dire uh, health-related consequences in terms of the the diseases and illnesses that uh, we are uh, being diagnosed with. They do. I'm. I'm not sure. I want to put all the blame, you know, on on ourselves and and the choices we make because at the same time, you know, we're often pushed to make a lot of decisions. I, there's advertising constantly about food, and at at every meeting, think of the uh, the box of Timbits or something that might show up. I mean, it's it's. It's a balance, right? It's partly us, and it's and it's partly the the way our lives are designed these days. I'll admit it; we're just weak as uh, as a species because we see that box of donuts and we're going to reach for it. Yeah, we are, and we're actually hardwired that way. I mean, you know, if you were uh, a cave person and you saw some food, you eat it because you have no idea when that uh, when your next meal is coming by. So we're still wired that way. That's funny to think. Uh, not so funny is, you know, the risk of diabetes, the risk of heart disease. There are some, you know, serious uh, diseases out there that, uh, in many cases, people are going down that path. 
That's true, you know, and it's uh, it has been climbing. I mean, partly that's as the population gets older, of course, a lot of these diseases are more common in older people, but we are seeing them in young people as well. So there, there are some serious health consequences to all of this. One of the uh, people we hear from in today's online uh, story is a doctor who's talking about our food environment has really changed from now compared to the 70s. Bigger portions, those unhealthy food choices seem to be everywhere nowadays. That's right. And we're in, he talks a lot about how we're constantly being pushed towards them too. I mean, is an ad on, on TV all the time. Uh, as I mentioned, every meeting now has, has a box of Timbits. Every, um, everything that you go to, we're always being told, uh, treat yourself, have, have a little something as a reward. And it's it, apparently quite different than it was back in the seventies. Leslie, appreciate the time today. Uh, uh, congrats on uh, uh, topic number one of this uh, series, Canada the Sick. Looking forward to uh, the, the rest of the week. Oh, thanks very much. Yeah, there's lots coming up. Leslie Young, uh, our guest, a senior national online journalist health at Global News. Uh, other topics again this week, income inequality, ditch the diet, rebuild our neighborhoods, work is killing us, and patient heal thyself. If you go on to the story today... Uh, at 900chml.com or, or globalnews.ca. They have a life expectancy calculator. It's created by a doctor and uh, his research team at the uh, Ottawa Hospital and the University of Ottawa. And I, I went through the calculator. It's pretty quick and easy. And it said that the life expectancy for people who answered the same questions is 82 years. So I'm already halfway to my life expectancy. It's very sobering. But it's a neat tool. And, you know, the genesis of it or the uh, the thought behind it is... Uh, you know, this this is reality, and, and you have the power to change uh, going forward, whether it's eating better, eating better, uh, eating less unhealthy things, getting more active, uh, you know, having a more uh, conscious mind towards being a healthier person, I think will only help you in the long run. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Continuing our discussion about why Canadians are so darn unhealthy. Global News launching an online series of stories called Canada the Sick. Examines some of the causes of our increasingly unhealthy way of life. All week long, you can read the stories at 900chml.com and globalnews.ca. Today's uh, story focuses on obesity and why Canadians... Um, and the statistics to back it up are growing more and more obese as the years go by. The World Obesity Foundation issued a report, I think this was sometime late last year, in December, I believe, that showed that 34% of Canadian adults will be obese by 2025, and it's going to cost us billions of dollars. Let's bring in our next guest. Her name is Shannon Crocker, a nutritionist. You can find a whole host of information on her website, shannoncrocker.ca, and she joins us now. Shannon, how are you? I'm great, thanks, Rick. How are you? Not too bad. Um, I guess we shouldn't be surprised by these statistics, or, or should we? Uh, well, you know, unfortunately, the rates of obesity uh, and overweight in Canada have been climbing, and I don't think that anyone is really too surprised to see these at the moment, although it is uh, definitely discouraging when you take a look at potential impact on long-term health. But there's lots to blame. It's not just one thing. No, absolutely. Like obesity is a very complex, um, lifelong challenge. And it's a, it's a chronic disease, actually, with lots of different 
um, risk factors and reasons for why someone might be uh, struggling with obesity, for example, genetics or gut health or how much sleep you have or stress or medications. It's not just a matter of how much food you're, you're eating. So when you are uh, corresponding with someone who's obese or someone who's overweight, uh, how do you approach the topic of, you know, here's the path where you can get to a better place, whatever that better place is for that individual? What are some of the things they should be doing to, to go down that path in, in, in the right way? Well, you know, obesity management is not just about eating less. Um, I, I like to talk to people about creating a healthy eating plan that's important for overall health. So I like to focus on looking not just at calories, but looking at your daily eating patterns, your weekly eating patterns, in um, trying to include more quality foods, more vegetables and fruits for not just that number on the scale, but for your overall health and looking at a plan that can fit in with someone's personal daily life that they can enjoy over the long term. I, I always look at the word, and maybe this is just me, but I look at the word diet as something that is not sustainable because it gets you to a place, but it doesn't keep you there. Uh, I know overall diet is an all-encompassing, this is how we should eat, but just for me in terms of I'm, you know, I'm going on a diet uh, seems to have a negative condensation because once I get to where I'm going to be, I don't need that diet anymore, but I should continue on with it, right? Well, that's the thing, actually. I mean, I, I, you know, there's a difference between a fad diet, a restrictive diet, a weight loss diet, and your, your overall diet, which really we should call a health eating pattern or right. a health eating style. You're right. So the issue with uh, when you go on a weight loss diet, per se, and you restrict your calories, um, is your body really does try to protect your level of, of body fat or your body weight. And so once you um, stop, you know, let's say, like you said, you know, you, you go on this, this diet, you restrict what you're eating, maybe. Um, you get to that goal weight that you had in mind, and then you think, well, okay, I'm going to go back to my old habits. Well, what happens is your body gets you back then to that uh, weight that you were at before. Once you stop putting into place all of those things that you, that you were doing to, to keep your calorie intake low, so your body kind of uh, fights back, which means it, it can be a real struggle. It's not impossible to maintain a weight loss, but it, it can be very difficult, and it's not really got anything to do with your personal um, motivation level or, um, you know, we, we talk about, you know, it's not a, something that you can blame that individual on. Your body really has a lot to do with it. Is it easier to get there than to stay there? I think it is. Yeah, for a lot of people who I've seen, it, it tends to be easier to lose that weight than to actually maintain that weight loss. And why do you figure that? Uh, that that's always intrigued me. Uh, well, it's in part because of, of what I just said around, you know, your body does fight to keep your body uh, weight uh, at its highest as what it's been. It's, it, we, there's a theory around a set point body weight. or um, And so when you lose that weight again and you've restricted your calories, maybe you've exercised more, once you drop those habits or you, you change back to, you know, a different eating style where maybe you're eating more food than you were before, um, you start to slowly gain that weight back. So we talk about, you know, your best weight. And your best weight is, you know, a weight at which you are able to enjoy your life. You're eating the foods that you enjoy. You're exercising for enjoyment, not for weight loss. And that might not be um, a weight that you had in mind um, in terms of, of a weight loss goal, but more about, 
you know, what your health is at that at that weight as well. What should people do to not only get to that desired weight or that, uh, uh, you know, feeling that you don't necessarily need to go on a diet? And I hate saying that because Mm -hmm. obviously we all have to eat and, and, uh, and, uh, you know, enjoy some physical activity, whether it's rigorous or not. People are going to do what they're going to do. But how do we get there and stay there? And is it is that different for everyone? Absolutely, it's different for everyone. That's an excellent point. And one of the things um, that I recommend people do is see a registered dietitian uh, to help them to set up an eating pattern that's not just, again, for weight loss, but is for health. Um, And a dietitian can also help you to manage um, what you're eating through an intuitive eating pattern. So listening to your body, eating when you're hungry, not just eating for sadness or um, boredom, or for reward. So we call that body hunger versus reward hunger. And that intuitive eating, that really listening to your body, um, will really help you to enjoy the foods that you want when you want them and eat foods in the amount that that's right for you. So that, that's one step. Um, and, you know, you need to take a look at your overall lifestyle perhaps. And a registered dietitian can help you out with that as well. You know, take a look at, at food factors like, you know, are you getting enough vegetables and fruits? Are you cooking enough meals at home and eating less highly processed nutrient-poor food? Um, but also, you know, what are your sleep patterns? Are you getting enough sleep? How can you manage stress? What's your stress level? Um, and and exercise as well, not just for that number on the scale again, but for overall health. We're chatting about uh, Canada's obesity rate uh, doubling since the 70s from uh, about 14% to about 28%. Uh, our guest is nutritionist Shannon Crocker. You can find uh, some great uh, uh, tips and advice uh, at shannoncrocker.ca. Uh, we've been talking about uh, the physical uh, appearance of people, uh, but it's really a mind game at the end of the day, isn't it? Well, you know what? You can't judge the person's health by their physical appearance, for sure. Uh, and weight is not a judge on your health. Um, and, and I think that that's really an important thing. Um, you know, when we take a look at our society, you know, it is a bit of a mind game and there is that weight bias and stigma that comes along with, uh, with weight, unfortunately. And so I think that's important for people to recognize is that just the number on the scale, the, your physical appearance does not dictate your health. And really what we need to work towards is overall health. We know that um, obesity is linked with health issues like heart disease, for example. Um, so, you know, we definitely want to manage that, but it's important to know that you can be healthy and, and regardless of the number on the scale um, in terms of just uh, overweight, for example. Got about a minute uh, to talk about uh, this uh, next uh, area of interest, in, at least to me, is that, you know, we're in a much faster-paced society. We're in the most connected uh, age of our civilization ever. Is it is it easier or harder nowadays to uh, get to a, a, a weight or a, a feeling of uh, satisfaction? Uh, well, I think the, one of the issues you bring up there around easier or harder, I think what's, what's difficult in our society right now is, first of all, the environment, food is everywhere. We do live in a fast-paced environment, but we are doing a lot of distracted eating, Rick. So we are on Instagram. Uh, we are on social media. We are sitting at our desks eating. That fast-paced sort of lifestyle and not taking a break to sit down and slow down and eat mindfully can definitely have an impact because when you are eating distractedly, 
um, say on social media, you're not paying attention to what you're eating, for example, you're not sitting down with your family and having a family meal without the TV on. When you're eating distractedly, you, you can end up eating more than you intend and that your body needs. So it's really important when you sit down to eat, even if it's just a snack, to just focus in on one thing and just eat. You know, don't also try to watch your favorite TV show at the same time. <laughs> I'm holding in my laughter because, Shannon, <laughs> you, you nailed it last night. My, I don't want to out my wife, but there she is <laughs> on the couch watching her tablet. She's eating a half a bag of corn twists, and I go up to her and she says, take these away. And so, <laughs> I t- so we all do it. It's true. I know. It's one of those things that really I think if people can work towards, you know, trying that could be a a great first step is trying to eat more mindfully turning off your devices putting putting your laptop your tablet away putting netflix off you know and really just focusing in on savoring the food that's in front of you and you'll find that you know intuitively you'll be able to just eat you know what your body's enjoying and what you actually need so it's really easy to to go over when you've got that that bag too in front of you and you're eating directly out of the bag you always want to put it into a smaller bowl <laughs> great tips shannon appreciate the time thank you very much okay thank you take care you too nutritionist shannon crocker find more online at shannoncrocker.ca you're listening to the scott thompson show podcast on 900 chml Political attack ads, do they work? Well, there's one in the United States that has really raised some eyebrows, caught some people's attention. Six siblings of American Republican Paul Gosar have urged voters to cast their ballots against the Arizona Republican in November in an unusual political ad sponsored by the rival candidate. The TV ad from Democrat David Brill combines video interviews with Gosar family siblings who ask voters to usher Paul Gosar out of office because he's broken with the family's values, although in the ad they don't elaborate. The family previously condemned the congressman's false accusation in 2017 that wealthy Democratic donor George Soros was a Nazi collaborator in the Second World War. Here's the ad. None of this is pleasant for any of us. It's horrible to have to do this. To speak up against my brother, it brings sadness to me. This isn't just about Paul. This is about their family. I think my brother has traded a lot of the values we had at at our kitchen table. I couldn't be quiet any longer, nor should any of us be. We got to stand up for our good name. This is not who we are. It's intervention time. And intervention time means that you go to vote and you go to vote Paul out. My name is Tim Gosar. My name is Jennifer Gosar. Gaston Gosar. Joan Gosar. Grace Gosar. David Gosar. Paul Gosar is my brother. My brother. My brother. And I endorse Dr. Brill. Dr. Brill. Dr. Brill. And I wholeheartedly endorse Dr. David Brill for Congress. I'm Dr. David Brill, and I approve this message. Well, there it is, and here he is, our next guest, Joe Valenzano III, Associate Professor of Communication at the University of Dayton, Ohio, and joins us now. Joe, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you, sir? Not too bad. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, Thoughts on this type of political attack ad? Well, it's unique, that's for sure. Yeah. (laughs) Have we seen anything like this before? Uh, not to my knowledge, uh, it, it, we we see negative campaign ads, but uh, I'd say I'd say this is singular in terms of family members uh, basically breaking ranks publicly uh, with with uh, with a 
sibling who's running for office. Does it have a hint of suspiciousness, though? Because here are six siblings of Paul Gosar on this ad. Well, um, I wouldn't say it's suspicious. I think it is um, interesting. He, he's actually one of ten kids. And so there are three who have decided not to take part in this for one reason or another. Um, I do think it's, uh, it's definitely eye-catching and telling that, that family members are not willing to support him. Uh, but it also does smack of kind of a, uh, a Hail Mary by uh, Dr. Brill, who uh, by all accounts is, doesn't really have a, a, a real big chance at, at unseating uh, Representative Gosar. Even so, do you think this type of ad can be effective? Uh, I mean, uh, it's obviously gotten people's attention. Well, I think that's one of the things that is the that is the goal of negative advertising, negative campaign ads. They do work in raising awareness, and at times they are effective at tipping the scales. But you need a competitive race for it to to really be uh, impactful. Um, there's no difference between losing by 20 and losing by 15. Uh, and if the ad moves 5% in that kind of race, that, I mean, it's significant generally in terms of percentages, but it's insignificant in terms of changing the race. Uh, so in general, political attack ads do work? They are effective in, in campaigns? At least in the, in the states they do. Um, it's kind of a dirty little secret, but, you know, at the end of the day, you're not going to spend uh, a significant amount of money to create ads that actually aren't, haven't been shown to work. Uh, they're shopped usually before they're created, uh, and historically negative negative attack ads do uh, do help uh, candidates uh, far more than issue ads do, because people are more attracted to emotion than they are to logic. Uh, it catches us first, and so if you can raise somebody's uh, emotional level, be it anger, be it frustration, be it fear, those those types of ads actually tend to work with audiences uh, far better than those that are based on this policy works or this policy doesn't work, uh, uh, issue-oriented ads. So it's basically attacking our emotions, getting us riled up to, uh, I guess, create a hate on for one individual and, and at the end of the ad, hey, love this person. Basically, yeah. Uh, and and really, that's not even a love this person at the end of the, the, the Brill ad, which is what's interesting. Right. Uh, it's really just, you know, Here's a whole bunch of people who you, it's it's more of a bandwagon effect, but of a of a familial nature where it's here's all these family members who don't want to vote for him and they're his blood. So how could you, who you know Joe audience member or Judy audience member, how can you vote for this guy and you're not even related to him when his own relatives won't hold him? And and that's really the rub. I mean that's what makes this uh, you know an outstanding ad in terms of you know here's six of his brothers and sisters who want no part of him uh, as uh, an Arizona Republican senator. Yeah, and and magnitude also I think adds into it. Um, so so an ad like this. Uh, uh, I'm wagering. Granted, we don't have a lot to compare it to, but it, but an ad like this, where you have six family members who are saying "Don't vote for him," uh, versus somebody who comes from a family of you know two, where the other sibling says "Don't vote." For him. <laughs> yeah, right. The magnitude matters. We're chatting with Joe Valenzano III, Associate Professor at Communications University of Dayton. Our topic is: Do political attack ads really work? Is there a line that politicians should not cross, and maybe some have crossed it? Um, yeah, I mean, you definitely don't want to go after somebody's family. Uh, that, that's usually held to be out of bounds. Um, and, and most ads are actually fairly good at this. They, they, they will tread the line uh, in, in attacks in terms of making them about the candidate. 
but won't go towards the family uh, on occasion. Uh, there are also, you know, there's also the the famous line in the U.S. with the uh, the LBJ presidential ad from the '60s, which portrayed a little girl uh, and then a mushroom cloud. Uh, and so, you know, that that ad, uh, historically speaking, it was very effective, but that's not a place where contemporary ads typically want to stray. When did politicians start using attack ads? Uh, well, it depends on what you would consider an attack ad. Okay. Because uh, you can go back in the U.S. to the early to the early days of the Republic when uh, candidates actually had newspapers, and the newspapers would basically just pummel other the the, the opposition. Uh, some of the more famous uh, attack pieces uh, were done during the 1824 election between John Quincy Adams and Andrew Jackson, uh, and uh, they went after Jackson's family. Uh, they went back went after. Uh, uh, him and uh, some of his uh, extramarital uh, uh, accusations. It was it was actually really nasty, uh, and so it's it's kind of actually been ingrained in the DNA for years. Uh, we tend to think of it in a contemporary through a contemporary lens only because of the visual nature of advertisements uh, on television, but it's actually been a part of of campaigning since the dawn of elections. Uh, from that to today's age, where we have social media to rely on as well, how is that kind of thrown a curveball into this whole equation? Oh, uh, that's, social media has essentially uh, opened up a Pandora's box for elections. Uh, and, uh, you know, you, you mentioned uh, earlier about uh, the 2017 campaign, uh, or not campaign, but the 2017 statement by Gosar about uh, George Soros and being a Nazi sympathizer. Uh, I mean that is a that's a pretty predominant social media uh, meme that's out there, and it's also factually inaccurate. Uh, and one of the things social media does is it allows unchecked statements to be purported and pawned off as fact, and people spread them because uh, it, all it takes is a, is really just a small group of people who don't fact check something to continue to push that, uh, and it blows up. And not just that particular one. There are tons of memes out there that are completely inaccurate about politicians uh, and completely unfair. And uh, you know, we saw it actually in the U.S. just recently. There were there were certain things that uh, that were circulated about John McCain uh, that are factually inaccurate uh, that that were that were sent around his death um, about uh, the Vietnam War and what he actually did. And, uh, again, just not correct, but because people don't fact check them, and there's a small group of people who will buy into it just based on who sends them a forward or posts something, uh, it tends to have legs. And we're certainly in the area of fake news. Uh, this only seems like it's going to get worse. It sure feels that way. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, the, the the mood is not uh, not terribly hopeful when it comes to these things. Uh, the, for me, the silver bullet, it's kind of what gets me up in the morning, and it's why I drive to work and why I do what I do, is, uh, you know, even though it's a, it's a drop in the universe's bucket, uh, is education, telling people not what to think, but how to think. You know, this is how you should evaluate something that you see. Your first question should be, all right, where's the source? Can I actually find the original material? And training students to do that, uh, you know, to me, gives me hope. Uh, but uh, in the larger public sphere right now, where memes and false news and accusations of fake news uh, dominate, it, it can be it can be a little overbearing at times. Why do you think people don't fact check when it comes to statements, allegations, claims from the political arena? Is it, is it because the general public is just too trusting or, or they can't be bothered? 
or uh, they or they don't want to find the actual re- the actual right answer. I, I don't think it's any of those actually. I think large a lot of it has to do with uh, with mental fatigue and mental overload. Uh, we live in an era where bef- we're at any uh, larger than it, or more so than at any point in human history we have access to so much information, and that's awesome. That's that's a tremendous resource that we can that we can use. But the flip side is we have access to so much information we don't know where to look and it kind of shuts us down so the ubiquity of of information and the and the the pervasiveness of the internet and quick availability uh really doesn't lend itself it lends itself more to people being overwhelmed with having to look than it does to wanting to look and find perfect example of that is the anti-vax movement where you have so much information on both sides um, a lot of it is inaccurate but people are just overloaded by everything that they're looking for and finding online that they'll just i guess naturally gravitate to one argument or the other yes and and the other thing is people tend to uh, always gravitate to arguments and information that will support what they already believe to be true Mm mm-hmm uh, best and worst attack ads that you've seen uh, in your uh, lifetime. Does one come to oh, mind? Gosh. Uh, honestly, I'd have to say the the Ghost Star one has been pretty uh, <laughs> pretty interesting from my perspective to look at. Um, you know, I think that uh, I think uh, some of the worst some of the worst ones were probably, uh, and I, I do it more from an ethical standpoint. Uh, in 2008, some of the attacks on McCain not being able to raise his arm and. Uh, some of that stuff in the U.S. kind of can get really, um, really negative and, 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 and unnecessarily so, um, you know. But uh, but you know some of the things that I think are uh, ethically odious tend to be often effective. Mm-hmm. Can can some of the backfire though? I mean, can it have a real negative effect with the, with the voting public? Absolutely, absolutely. There there are times uh, there are there are types of ads that will will essentially. Uh, get you kind of the free media coverage because they're so unique and then completely and utterly blow up in your face because you were too aggressive because being too aggressive what might be the reason why people started talking about your ad is there anything new that we are seeing or or are these political ads uh, attack ads just going to stay with us until eternity or or is someone somewhere down the line going to come up with a new tactic to get people's attention i think negative advertising is probably something that's just part of part of the process uh, and it doesn't necessarily need to be bad. I think attacks on people's character can be difficult to swallow at times, but character is an important dimension of choosing an elected official. Uh, and so I wouldn't necessarily call it as being out of bounds. Uh, you know, I think that um, that one of the things that this is showing us, especially that I think the Gosar ad is really indicative of, is uh, the, the real divide that you're seeing in the United States these days. Uh, and it's a it's a division that doesn't fall necessarily along Democratic and Republican lines straight down the middle. I think that there's fractured elements on both sides, uh, and I think that the current climate has facilitated those fractures, uh, <clears throat> basically uh, expanding. It's an interesting uh, discussion. Uh, we'll, we'll see who wins this race and, and the races to come in terms of uh, attack ads. Uh, they are uh, some unique, some humorous, some not so much. Uh, but, Joe, appreciate the time today and uh, continued uh, luck and uh, uh, with uh, the University of uh, Dayton, Ohio. Thank you. My pleasure to be with you today. Joe Valenzano the third is an associate professor of communication at the University of Dayton, Ohio. We've been talking about uh, political attack ads, most of them being negative these days, but most of those are in the United States, although we have seen some here in Canada. We saw certainly the 
um, federal conservatives attacking uh, Justin Trudeau before the uh, previous federal election. It'll be interesting to see come, well, especially this time next year, what those ads are going to look out like, uh, not only from the conservatives who are now the opposition, but the liberals who are now in power, and of course the NDP and the Green Party. Uh, the the attack ads, for me personally, are more humorous than anything. Um because I just I, I'm you know I'm a positive person I I like to focus on the positive so when someone or a party is trying to break down another person that always raises my suspicion uh, the the skepticism meter kind of inches upwards but at the end of the day it gets me and hopefully you uh, to do some homework in terms of learning about these candidates and learning about the issues and learning about what people. Uh, want to see from their next government or politician or counselor or whatever the case is. Uh, Gosar, by the way, a fourth-term congressman for a, a sprawling district in uh, northwestern and central Arizona, fired back at his six brothers and sisters in a series of tweets calling them disgruntled supporters of Hillary Clinton from out of state who put ideology before family. Quote, my siblings who chose to film ads against me are all liberal Democrats who hate President Trump. Stalin would be proud. In a separate video segment, the siblings urge voters to hold the congressman accountable on health care, employment, and environmental issues. Wow, talk about a family fight. There's one times ten, or at least times six. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Class action lawsuits in Canada and the U.S. now in the works against Ticketmaster. It follows a Toronto Star CBC investigation that revealed new details about the company's selling techniques, hidden cameras showing Ticketmaster actively recruiting scalpers to resell its tickets through its train desk professional reseller program. Ticketmaster issuing a statement back on Thursday denying collusion with scalpers and saying it's launched an internal Review. Dean Budnick is our next guest. He's the co-author of Ticket Masters, The Rise of the Concert Industry and How the Public Got Scalped. He's also the editor-in-chief of Relix Magazine and joins us now. Dean, how are you? Pretty good, sir. Yourself? Not too bad. Well, sounds like this is another oops moment for Ticket Master. Should anyone be surprised? Well, I mean, the thing is this. Well, the answer is no. Uh, on the other hand, I don't think anyone should be surprised that you know that that there res- that there is a platform to resell tickets because that actually has been in place for about a decade when they acquired this company called Tickets Now and I think maybe that's been happening sort of quietly outside of the public purview but it, it has indeed been been going on for about a decade now. Ticketmaster seem to be bulletproof no matter what the controversy, and there's been some big ones over the last number of years. Is this one different, though? So the only reason why this one is different is this. The fact that Ticketmaster supports ticket, you know, facilitates the efforts of ticket brokers, that actually, again, is something they've been doing for a while. They made a commitment, some would say a misguided commitment, to buy this secondary uh, ticketing market called Tickets Now in 2008. So that's been going on for a while. They've at least had a marketplace in which people could resell tickets. Where things get a little bit squirrely through that video is someone who is working with brokers 
on the Ticketmaster side who said it doesn't matter how many ticketing accounts you have. And Ticketmaster, in its own terms of service, uh, indicates that you can only have one. You can't have hundreds of multiple accounts by which you're attempting some type of subterfuge. So that is the area in which I think some people are rather surprised. Hence the uh, quote-unquote internal review. Right. right. Listen, there's no question about that. I mean, whether or not the the people who were in charge of primary ticketing, you know, the initial on sale, whether they knew about that, and my guess is, frankly, they didn't, uh, they should have. And they should have at least informed the people on the secondary ticketing side that they can't encourage professional scalpers or ticket brokers to have hundreds of accounts when this is clearly a violation of the, of the terms of service. We're chatting with uh, Dean Budnick, uh, co-author of Ticket Masters, The Rise of the Concert Industry and How the Public Got Scalped. He's also the editor-in-chief of Relix Magazine. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Rick, in for Scott. We seem to be willing to spend whatever amount of money to see our favorite sports teams, concerts, using Ticketmaster. Does the public even care about what's going on? Boy, that is that is the question. And, and frankly, do do you know do legislators even care? It's it's hard to know because it seems like these stories come up time and again about what's going on relative to pricing, relative to the secondary market. And briefly, you know, the, the media latches onto it and expresses to the general public what's going on, and there's a little bit of outrage, and then people forget. I mean, clearly it, it's not as important as um, violent crime and, you know, uh, earning a living and taking care of one's family. I, I think at some point, really as a matter of public policy, I think legislatures have to decide you know, to what extent this is significant and should decide to, to act or, or opt not, not to do so. I guess it only matters when a famous Canadian band goes on its farewell tour, uh, <laughs> knowing it's going to be for the final time, a.k.a. the Tragically Hip, and people are outraged because they can't get those tickets. I could understand that. I mean, listen, to some degree, people are always going to be happy, right? Because there are a finite number of tickets that are available to any show in any given venue. What I would like to see is transparency throughout the process. So people know from the get-go how many tickets are being siphoned off for credit card pre-sales, how many tickets are being held by the promoter, how many might be held by the band for fan pre-sales, how many are going to, you know, um, uh, to record com- uh, to, to, to uh, radio stations, for radio station pre-sales. And all of this, at least then, people could go into the whole process with that knowledge and can make some logical decisions as to how to focus their efforts, what their price point might be in terms of buying tickets, and really just have a sense of just how challenging it may or may not be to be able to go out and buy tickets at a reasonable cost to see their favorite band. So why can't we have those percentages in place in black and white to say X percentage goes here, this goes there? Is it just a matter of somebody or somebody doing that? It, it would be. The, the, the problem is that I think just about no one who's involved in the process is all that eager to share that information right. with the public. I don't believe the venues, the promoters, the artists, the marketing partners, I think everyone feels a little bit uncomfortable about sharing that information. That's like for many years, Ticketmaster, you know, charged fees 
and people were outraged by those fees. And Ticketmaster, for a long while, didn't explain that these fees were actually being shared by a number of other individuals. They were being shared by the promoters, being shared by the venues, to some, at sometimes even being shared by the artists. And all of that was kept quiet. Now people know a little bit more of that, but they still don't entirely understand the, the, the system as a whole. And that's because no one, you know, no one wants people to know, frankly. Are we ever going to get there? I, I think we get there if ultimately legislatures step in and decide that that is important, that that's public policy that's worth pursuing. Otherwise, I, I don't see what ultimately would propel any of these other individuals in that in that chain to decide to re- to release that information. Dean, great discussion. Uh, appreciate the time today. Enjoy the rest of the day. Thank you, sir. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to three on nine hundred CHML.